0: Welcome to the Diabetes Canada Healthcare Huddle, a podcast that invites healthcare professionals to listen in on the discussion as we explore a diabetes-related topic. Each episode, we will present a case study, then have a conversation with an expert about the clinical challenge. Finally, we will revisit the case and see how we can apply our new knowledge and tools. My name is Dr. Sarah Stafford. I'm an endocrinologist in Surrey, BC, and I'm joined by my colleague, Gail McNeil, who's a diabetes educator and clinical nurse specialist from Toronto. Today, we are very fortunate to have Dr. Tiffany Shepard here to join us for our conversation. Dr. Shepard is a health psychologist in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Her PhD is from Simon Fraser University in Burnaby, BC. In her clinical work, she specializes in chronic disease self-management with patients with various chronic diseases, including diabetes, inflammatory bowel disease, and obesity. She is a part-time faculty member in the psychology department at Mount St. Vincent University and also provides training to healthcare providers in behavior change counseling skills. Her research interests include chronic disease management and disease-based distress, health behavior change, and stress and coping. And it sounds like those are skills that all of us would benefit from learning more about. So we want to learn some of these skills from Tiffany, and we can put this in the context of a patient. So Gail, I think you have a patient you've encountered recently who might be experiencing some diabetes distress, and we can learn how to help this person.
1: Yes, thank you, Sarah. And thank you, Tiffany, for joining us today. I have this problem or situation that I'm looking for some help with. Um, I wanted to introduce Sean, he's been a long term client of ours in our diabetes center and he's 27 years old, married, living with his wife and his three month old baby girl. He was diagnosed with type one when he was 14 years old and feels his diabetes, diabetes management has been reasonable. And I feel it has been too. I've been working with him over the past five years where he's changed jobs, he's got married and has stated he's uh, just starting a family. goals have always been to incorporate his diabetes management into his life and minimizing the impact but aware of what he needs to do Um, when he changed jobs recently his A1C was a lot higher than he had hoped for and we talked about what was happening he said um, he looked at the situation he said that in his new job he had to change his daily routine and he lost focus sort of on his diabetes management however within a short period of time we helped him work out a new routine and his following A1C was right within target so Sean has definitely shown that he's got some great coping skills. Um, So three months ago at his last clinic appointment, I asked um, Sean how he felt about the upcoming birth and how it might change his life. And as a new parent, he expressed minimal concern. He stated, well, I think it's just something you grow into. (laughs) So however, Tiffany, here's my situation. When Sean came in for his appointment today, He was several minutes late and he literally rushed to the table where he dropped his glucose monitoring system, his insulin pants and his three month supply of insulin. And his comment to me was, I've had enough. I'm not dealing with this anymore. You can have all this stuff. And then he turned to walk out of the room without any further comment. Now, this is not the Sean I know, and obviously his coping skills just cannot meet his level of distress at this point in time. So Tiffany, I'm asking, where do I start with Sean in this situation?
2: Thank you, Gail. That's such a great example, such a great case for for so many reasons. And I think that when we're thinking about the kinds of distress that our patients with diabetes can show up in our, in our clinics, in our, in our, in our appointments, demonstrating that there's different, different sources of distress. And I think that's actually a really good kind of start point for, for this podcast today is sort of, you know, talking about what is diabetes distress and how is it different from other forms of distress that, that, that patients might experience. Um, And so diabetes distress is a, is a, is a specific form of distress. It's disease specific in that the, the stress really stems from living with coping with managing or, or anticipating or thinking about how am I going to be able to cope with the day-to-day demands of such a behaviorally demanding disease like, like diabetes. So where that differs from psychopathology or, you know, diagnoses like depression and that those are more sort of general forms of distress that, that permeate individuals' lives beyond a specific one specific reason, typically something like diabetes, that's sort of the source of the distress. And then sometimes other distress that people show up with has to do with sort of problems in living that they're having that, that there's things that are sort of beyond their control or that they're dealing with coping out, you know, coping with outside of um, their health or, or that sort of thing, family issues and whatnot that are also, you know, taxing them and and taking up more than than they're able to kind of manage in the moment. So um, I think that that's a really great example of thinking about, you know, where is the distress coming from for this person and having a discussion around that can help us to sort of figure out where to, you know, where we are best um, able to step in and provide support and recommendations
0: thanks so much for that outline of what we're the problem is that we're trying to address here. And I wonder, is diabetes distress different
2: for people with type one diabetes versus type two diabetes? There can be some differences, I think across the board, we do see that rates of diabetes distress um, are similar from from the from the data that we have in terms of you know, individuals with type one and type two. So in terms of prevalence of of diabetes distress, and again, so that's a of distress very specific to just managing and dealing with diabetes Um, rates of 20 to 30 and sometimes up uh, upwards of 30 percent of individuals with diabetes either type 1 or type 2 will report having some clinically significant distress. Um, I think the flip side of that too is to acknowledge how many people living with diabetes don't necessarily experience that level of distress Uh, but the distress itself can come from different sources so to kind of come back to your question sometimes the distress has to do with um managing or sort of feeling um, that emotional burden associated with with living with diabetes and managing the demands with that. And sometimes it has to do with sort of the the regimen side of things, like feeling like I'm failing at the regimen. I'm not able to keep up. I'm not able to do the behaviors and the self-care tasks that are needed to be able to achieve my 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 diabetes goals. And then other distress can come from, Um, you know, feeling like a lack of support from interpersonal relationships. And that might be with family and friends, kind of more close social social networks, but also in our, uh, in relationships with providers as well, having distress and, and feeling, um, uh, feeling like support is is lacking, or they're not getting the right kind of support. So it can really come from different, um, from different places. And I think that in type one diabetes, um, we might, you know, see uh, more um, distress associated with, um, uh, insulin, you know, the insulin based regimes and, and, and maybe fear of hypoglycemia. Um, but that isn't to say that individuals with type two, especially those that also are on insulin don't have the same sorts of fears and worries as well. So um, it's, it's, it's common, uh, uh, common enough, certainly across the board for both type one and type two.
0: And do you find that diabetes distress is related to glycemic control or outcomes overall?
2: Yeah in the in the research so far it hasn't been there's there's some relatively clear relationships between distress and glycemic control outcomes, but we're not really clear about how or why that, that happens yet. So we do see reductions in self-care behaviors and self-management behaviors when people are reporting higher levels of distress. And we do see, you know, increases in blood glucose and hemoglobin A1C and whatnot as well. So there does seem to be a relationship between having diabetes based distress and more negative outcomes, both with respect to health behaviors and self-management and, and glycemic control.
0: So it sounds like it's really important that we identify diabetes, stress, stress, and start to develop tools and resources for individuals who are having these challenges. Is there any way that I can identify the population at risk for diabetes distress? Who should I be looking at more carefully?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so there are some, you know, subgroups within the population that do seem to be at greater risk of, or demonstrate higher rates of diabetes distress. So, um, women, um, minority groups as well, and individuals who are actually younger um, that have been diagnosed with diabetes probably more recently, um, do seem to have more elevated levels of distress. So folks who don't, you know, maybe have access to as many resources and some of those groups that are marginalized that we do see um, struggling with social determinants of health and whatnot as well. So I think that those are some groups that are certainly are at um, higher risk, but, uh, you know, across the board, I think that it's important to be screening for and assessing for diabetes distress as it can certainly affect anybody. Um, And certainly from that perspective of, um, you know, identifying, um, you know, it early on, like milder cases of it or whatnot, before it becomes severe, and before it becomes really problematic to be more preventative um, would be would be ideal. So I think the case can certainly be built to be screening for it regularly within within the context of clinics too. even if people are not already presenting with some, you know, indicators of distress to be able to, you know, identify them first and, and to provide support early on. I think that's a really wonderful point that you made that
0: we don't want to wait until there's a crisis Mm -hmm. to intervene. If we can try Mm -hmm. to look for smaller signs of distress and intervene early, we might be able to prevent some of these crises like Gail was describing for her Mm -hmm. patient. Um, How might we look for those signs of diabetes distress?
2: There are certainly measures like really well-validated measures um, that, that have been developed. So the, um, the, uh, the, the uh, diabetes distress scale, um, for example, as well as the problem areas um, in diabetes, the paid and then the DDS are, are two commonly used um, well-validated measures. Um, and I think, too, that in, you know, in the absence of that, when individuals are coming in and, and talking about the distress, that we can really use the patient provider Um, relationship and bond and and communication within that to be able to understand, again, kind of coming back to Gail's case, what is it that's driving the distress in this situation and recognize and sort of trying to figure out and identify is the distress coming from psychopathology? You know, is this a a diagnosable, you know, mental health condition? Is this diabetes specific? Or is does this have to do with problems in living and, and other circumstances that the person is coping with? And then from there, we can sort of help to figure out what would be Appropriate next steps, how can we best support them in making recommendations?
0: So I think often when we're in clinic with patients, we can see that people are struggling. I'll be sitting there in clinic and a patient will identify some stressors or or kind of showing some signs of distress, even if I haven't done a formal assessment. Mm -hmm. Um, But sometimes I think we feel a little paralyzed in what to do Mm because I don't really know what to offer other than hearing them and listening to them and providing empathy I don't really know where to go from there. And so I think, you know, is that perhaps a barrier in identifying diabetes distress when the care providers, you know, don't really know what resources are available or where to go after identifying the distress?
2: Yes, or or have tried to find resources and, and don't even have them at hand and know that they, this is something that their population requires, but don't have direct access to mental health providers or clinicians that specialize in those areas as well. So yeah, absolutely. I think that that, that, that absolutely can be a barrier and that we don't have enough resources in place um, across, you know, from for for mental health generally speaking, never mind a specific disease-based issues that people face and, and could benefit from more specialized support from. But I also wouldn't underestimate what you said earlier with respect to listening and just being able to offer empathy. Um, and there's a lot of research that shows that the you know the power of or the empowering ability of the patient provider relationship with it when it is when it's strong collaborative patient centered um and and um uh you know good communication skills and that sort of thing or good communication practices that they're open and, and and patients are involved in their decision making and they have that opportunity to share their emotional experiences to kind of let let the distress out have it have it have it be aired and to have it be heard, acknowledged, validated, normalized, all of those things are incredibly powerful. So even in that moment, that, that sharing of, of, um, you know, the emotional experiences that they're having and recognizing and and hearing back from somebody like, I get it. That makes sense. That makes perfect sense that you would be experiencing that. If I was going through that, I would be as stressed out as you. and, And I don't have diabetes. I'm not making the extra hundred Health decisions per day on top of what I'm already managing. So to think about you managing that situation and diabetes, it makes absolutely your makes sense that you want to quit. You want to just drop everything. You this is something you don't get to take a vacation from. Now would be a perfect time to take a vacation from diabetes, and you can't do that. This makes perfect sense just to have that experience and to be able to um, be heard and validated. Um, is is really, really powerful. And, and there's research that shows that when those kinds of relationships can be fostered and engendered between the patient and the provider, that 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 health outcomes do improve, that people will p- report higher levels of confidence in their ability to manage their diseases and, um, you know, have, feeling like they're emotionally supported better. So even in and of itself, that can be like a mini intervention therapeutic to, to have that opportunity to to, to share that. So I, I, I absolutely hear what you're saying. And certainly in the cases where the distress is more severe and, and it looks like more specialized support would be needed, that having access to that and being able to identify and determine that that's the case is, is vital. But in that relationship itself that there are things that can, that can happen that can be really valuable to the patient.
0: That's great. And I think we really need to remember that that relationship between the patient and the care provider is critical. And we shouldn't be afraid to just ask how people are doing and Mm -hmm. hear them and just provide that healing space just in that conversation between the two people in the room. Uh, So that definitely makes sense that that's step one. Um, But let's imagine a situation where someone's really struggling and this diabetes distress is affecting their mental health and their physical health. What can we do? What resources or techniques or strategies can we put
2: forward to help that person? Um, so I think that kind of coming back to what we said earlier, certainly we're available to be able to make um, referrals to mental health providers, particularly ones who can, who can identify and having some experience in you know chronic disease management, maybe generally and diabetes quite specifically. I think that uh, individuals with diabetes get a lot out of having conversations with people that you know, where they don't have to explain the ins and outs of diabetes, if that's a possibility, although we know that not everybody has that background necessarily in in, in mental health. Um, and I think that there's also, you know, again, like coming back to where we're at with the research and, and what's been done, I think that there is, you know, certainly some movement towards identifying what are some of the most helpful mechanisms, and it probably has something to do with what is source of the distress. So where is it coming from? Is it coming from the relationships um, that the person has? Is it coming from the regimen? Is it coming from, you know, the emotional side? And if we can understand where the distress is coming from, then that can help uh, to direct us, okay, is this about you know, maybe we can support them in their family relationships and communication skill development, or is this about something in our relationship to work on with as, as being the, as the provider? Um, or is there something about the regimen itself? Is there some problem solving around what it is that they're doing their, their current regimen and, and can there be any adaptations made there? Um, and I think too, we're also seeing um, evidence of the, of the um, usefulness of having peer support as well. So interventions that are being developed and looking at having people who, you know, who who have diabetes coming together and supporting one another um, through some structured interventions. So um, I think that there's, uh, I think that there's different, different approaches that could be that could be helpful, depending on what it is the person's experiencing.
0: That's wonderful. Thank you so much for giving us some tools and some next steps. And I just wanted to hand it back over to Gail. Gail, based on this conversation, do
1: you have anything you can take away for your next visit with Sean? Absolutely. Thank you, Tiffany, for great advice, I think. And I do know where to start. And I have to suggest, Tiffany, you've given me as an educator confidence to go forward as well, because the relationship I've had with Sean has been great in the past. And I'm going to build on that. I'm going to use that in this situation. And the first thing I'll start with, exactly as you said, is let him just sit down and chat, talk. Just let him express himself and we'll find out where that actual anxiety and stress is coming from now clearly I think it's the birth of a baby in a family it is a huge idea but I want to recognize the stress and help him like normalize it and you gave me a really good clue because he's been successful in the past in dealing with his diabetes and I have a feeling that he's feeling like a failure right now because I you know that being a new parent is so overwhelming that he's relating that into his diabetes management as well So I think I'm gonna go back a bit and help him just establish what it is he can do along the way and have him be easier on himself and uh, just figure out small routines, like we've done before, build those coping skills. He's got them, I've seen them. I just need to actually figure out how he can use them in this situation. Another really important part you've uh, suggested or given a point, point you've given to me, Tiffany, is in the preparation. I think three months ago when he came back to me and said that, you know, having a baby is just something you grow into, I should have started to do some preparation for him at that point in time. Because we all know having a baby is is quite something and changes, especially all the routines in type 1 diabetes. He he can't look after himself all the time, let alone the baby. So I should have started to prepare. So I think that's an excellent point for educators, is that when we see this coming or we know these events are coming, it's helped the patient start to prepare what-ifs and to start building up their coping skills. But I am going to work on that relationship because I think that's where I'm going to start with them. We've had a great relationship in the past, and I think I can use that to go forward. So, thank you, Tiffany. That was a great, some great suggestions and and pearls of uh, for practice, and I can go back to them with a little bit more, with a lot more confidence now. <laughs>
0: That was wonderful. Thank you so much, both to Tiffany and Gail. I think we had a wonderful conversation today, thinking about the prevalence of diabetes distress, looking for those signals that might indicate that someone is struggling and the importance of just making that connection and having that conversation to allow the space to happen with empathy and then offering tools for support moving forward. So thank you very much for sharing your knowledge. And we hope this was helpful to our listeners. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> thanks for joining us today. If you have questions about the episode or about becoming a member of the Diabetes Canada professional section, please email diabetes.ca. Special thanks to Adam Humphreys for providing the music for today's podcast.